When you woke up this morning and you realized it was Sunday, what were the first thoughts that ran through your head? Maybe you thought, the Colts might win today, right? <laughs> Last week I kind of threw them under the bus and they pulled one out, right? So maybe you thought, it's another opportunity to meet with God's people. I hope you thought, this is my chance to rehearse the gospel and to respond to the gospel, like we talked about last week. We're in the middle of a three-week series on what it means to worship. What are we doing together here? Why are we here? What's the purpose of Sunday? That's what we're exploring. And last week, I tried to help you understand what the purpose is of Sunday morning. Next week, we'll talk about the matter of preaching. Why do we listen to sermons, and how do we listen to sermons? Today, we're gonna talk about the matter of singing. Do you know that you were made to sing? Singing is embedded into the fabric of your humanity. I'll prove it to you. When you teach a child their ABCs, how do you teach them? A, B, C, D. In fact, that's so effective that some of you, when you're rifling through a phone book, those used to exist, or some other thing where you're trying to remember the alphabet, do you not sing the song to yourself again to remind yourself? Elemental P, Q, R, S. When someone has a birthday, and you want a group of people to honor them, what is our tradition? We make them stand in a chair in a restaurant or sit in a saddle with a cowboy hat and we sing songs at them. <laughs> Happy birthday. What a tradition. My goodness. When, um, when the Notre Dame football team plays at home, husky men in big shoulder pads and tight uniforms stand on the edge of the field and they sing the alma mater. And then just think of the most evident controversy right now making its way through the NFL. It relates to how does one respond to the singing of the national anthem. So you need to understand that singing is a part of the fabric of our humanity and no group sings more often than the church. It's what we do and it's what we should do. In fact, do you know that you are commanded to sing? Psalm 47, 6 tells us that we must sing to the Lord. When Israel came out of Egypt, the first thing they did was to sing. When Paul was thrown into prison, he sang. When Jesus gathered with his disciples at the end of celebrating the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn together. Can you imagine what it would have been like to sing with Jesus? What a moment. The book of Revelation tells us that heaven is filled with singing as people from every tribe, nation, and tongue gather together and offer God the praises that are due him. You know, don't you, that singing is powerful? There are few things more connected to your heart than singing. Next week, next week we'll explore the subject of preaching. Preaching aims to reach your heart. That's what my aim is. I'm aiming at your heart, but I'm gonna get there through your mind. You can't feel something from a sermon unless you understand what's being said. But with singing, it's different. Singing does certainly aim for the mind, but it begins with the heart. Singing is a heart language. The emotions are involved from the very beginning. In fact, when I'm struggling with anxiety and I can't think my way out of what I'm thinking, I sing at it. That's my nuclear option. I pull the song lever. John Piper says this, 
The reason we sing is that there are depths and heights and intensities and kinds of emotions that will not be satisfactorily expressed by mere prosaic forms or even poetic readings. There are realities that demand to break out of prose into poetry, and some demand that poetry be stretched into song. Singing is the Christian's way of saying, God is so great that thinking will not suffice. There must be deep feeling. Thinking, or talking rather, will not suffice. There must be singing. So friends, there are a few things more emotional than singing. God's designed it to be that way. There are a few things more connected to your heart than what you sing. There's also a few things more subjective than singing. A few things more connected to our preferences than singing. And a few things more unifying than singing. Church, we were made to sing. In fact, the church must sing. This morning I want to explore this by having you think about this particular word that's in the text. It's the word harmony. Colossians 3, 11 to 17 is our passage this morning, and one of the most important words is found in verse 14. Look at that verse. This is Colossians 3, 14. Above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I love the fact that the ESV translators use that because what, what it does, although other translations render it as unity or bond of unity, The ESV translators are connecting the theological truths of the previous verses with the musical expression of harmony in the next. The idea of harmony is that it is this beautiful togetherness that is created by individual parts. So you don't create harmony on your own. In order for harmony to be created, you need somebody else next to you. And as wonderful as your song may be by yourself, it's better when you sing with other people. In fact, for some of you, it's essential. (laughs) Praise God there's people around you because their singing drowns out your beautiful noise to the Lord. And rest assured, one day your voice will be pitch perfect in heaven. So until then, just keep belting it out, brother. We love you anyways. So harmony. Harmony is explained and then harmony is expressed in our text. That's going to be our outline. So first, harmony explained. The connection between harmony and the body of Christ actually begins in verse 11 where it says, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or fee, but Christ is all and in all. Paul has been talking in this chapter about what it means for the believers to be a new community of people. He begins his argument in chapter three and verse one, and essentially says, look, you've been raised with Christ, and if you've been raised with Christ, then things are gonna be different about you, and things are gonna be different about the people that you gather with. I mean, that makes sense. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's what you hoped the church would be. Maybe you even come here today because that's what you're looking for. You find an emptiness within your heart and you're looking for hope today and that's available to you through the person and work of Jesus. I hope you'll hear that as we even walk through this text today. Paul then directs his words specifically to those who are believers that we're to, verse two, set our minds on things that are above. And the whole reason for this in verse three is because you have died 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So essentially what he's saying is because of your relationship with Christ, that means that fundamentally you're a different person. Something within you has been taken care of. Your guilt, your sin, your old you has been crucified with Christ. And God, by his spirit, has given you a new heart. And as a result, then there are certain things that are different about you and certain things that are different about your community. In fact, he says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Meaning that things like sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, they just simply don't go along with what it means to be a committed follower of Jesus. And while none of us are perfect, the fact of the matter is, is that it should not be a surprise that those things are wrong. That being a follower of Jesus means that there's a particular morality that goes along with what it means to be alive in Christ. What's more, there's this unity that should mark them, not just a morality, but also a unity, and that's what we see in verse 11, that if they are, if the church is this group of people that have been so changed by Christ, if they have a new understanding of who they are, a new identity in Jesus, a new morality, then there will also be a new level of unity, which is why he says, here, Where's here? Here is the church. Here, he says, there is not Greek and Jew. Here, there is not circumcised and uncircumcised. Here, there is not barbarian or Scythian. And by the way, Scythian is like a barbarian of all barbarians. Here, there is not slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So the church, then, is marked by a harmony that that comes because of Jesus. Because Christ is all, And because he's in all, it means that there is a belonging that is underneath all of our broken belongings. So we think about our strategy to help people grow. We think about belong, grow, and multiply. We start with belong because what happens in the gospel is you belong in a way that you could never belong apart from Christ. And then this unity extends even further. In verse 12, it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So there's things that they're to put on. Now this word put on doesn't mean like to put on something that you don't possess. It means like take your own coat and put it on. The wording in the original language is this. Be who you are. The best illustration I can give of this, I've given it before, is this. When I was in seventh and eighth grade, I was one of the shortest guys in my class. I trained as a, in basketball as a point guard, so lots of ball handling drills, et cetera, et cetera. And then in my freshman year, sophomore year, my junior year, I grew about four to six inches every year. It hurt. It was painful. By the time I got to play on varsity, I was 6'5", one of the taller guys in my class, but I still thought like a guard. And so often my coach would say to me, Mark, be 6'5", be 6'5". He wasn't telling me to grow. He was saying, you are 6'5", so go in the post, go up strong, take it up, stop acting like a wimpy guard and put that ball in the hole, right? That's what he meant, be 6'5". Sorry for all the guards I threw under the bus, but just, just saying. And this is the idea. When he says, put on, he means this, be who you are. Like, be the church that God has meant you to be. And then he describes things that they are to be compassionate hearts, a deep concern for others. I mean, this makes sense, doesn't it? If you've you've had a heart that's been redeemed by Jesus, then there ought to be kindness that comes out of you, treating people with an undeserving generosity. Humility, a self-forgetfulness in light of who God is. 
How many of you came in off of the parking lot this morning and said, oh my word, you couldn't believe what happened out there? There's people honking and arguing over a parking space. I mean, that makes sense that it would happen in a Walmart parking lot or in Target. But in a church, it just seems wrong, doesn't it? Like really, really wrong. Like get security out there, help people know not to argue about where to park. You just think that's not how church is supposed to be. It's true. There's supposed to be meekness, power under control. Supposed to be patience, putting up with people without getting angry. Supposed to be bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Applying grace to one another when we have petty disagreements or forgiving one another when those wrongs need to be talked about. Listen, this list sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Who doesn't want a church like that? Who doesn't want a small group like that? My goodness, who doesn't want to drive to Florida like that, right? That's awesome. I mean, these are, these are things that we would long for, the kind of things that are so good and so right that they ought to mark the body of Christ. You put all of them together of a group of people who are acting this way, oh man, there's nothing greater. People coming from all walks of life, different backgrounds, different tastes, oh, they may be able to do something good individually, but the sum total of what they do together is unbelievable. Reminds me recently, I was at a concert and was watching an, an orchestra. I mean, I love the sound of a violin, a solo violin, the, the sweet sound that just kind of travels through the air with such majesty and beauty. I love a solo violin, but you put 20 violins together in an orchestra, and it is a sight to behold, not only because of the sound that comes, but I was watching the bows as they're going up and down and up and down and up and down, and the orchestra was controlling every moment, and they were all together. They stopped in cue. They started in cue. They ended in cue, and the sound just kind of floated through the air, and the sum total of 20 violins was so much more beautiful than one. Friends, that's what the church is meant to be. You can worship God with your iPod walking in the woods. Sure you can. But you're going to worship him differently, and I would argue even better when you're with the body of Christ. Now there's one more trait. It is the trait of love. We're to put on all these, but we're also to put on love in verse 14. It says this, because love is the thing that binds everything together in perfect harmony. So love is the glue of the church. Jesus himself said that we're to love one another. It's a command of the sovereign king who loved you with a love you could have never loved him with. It's the witness of the church that's on the line because Jesus says all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And the church's voice is compromised when we don't love one another. You know why this is important? Because the church can deal with just about any issue if we know from the start, look, we love one another. When I'm talking to my wife or my kids about something that's tough, it's different because they know I love them. And that foundational love makes all the difference in the world. But you know what I found over the years in being in church ministry? That often church is not marked by love. Instead, it's marked by something a friend of mine calls the pride divide. And the pride divide means that whatever issue it is in the church, that people separate on one camp or the other. On the one hand, you have the resistors who don't like what's being done to them, and they, they, they don't like the things that they have to put up with, and they don't want to be told what to do, and sort of forcing them to sort of go along, and so they have their arms crossed. And on the other hand, you have the resenters who are tired of people looking down on them, assigning motives as to what they do, or think they know why everything is what's happening inside of their heart and where it comes from. And so often the church is on the either side of those two dynamics of both resenters and resistors. Some of you may be here this morning and you are a resenter 
And when it comes to singing or worship or what happens on Sunday, let's be honest, you're, you're in that camp or maybe you're a resenter because you feel like people look down on you or they judge motives because of either what you're doing or how you're doing it. See, the church was designed to be a place of harmony. The presence of Christ in all of us, the, the fruit of Christ's work flowing through us, and then the obedience to Christ's command as we love one another, they compel us to do whatever we can to be able to keep harmony together. We are, according to verse 15, to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts as we are called into one body. This is when church is at its, is at its best. Look, even from a secular standpoint, people recognize when something like this is true how remarkable it is. Consider, for example, the relationship between two Supreme Court justices, one deceased, one still living. Anthony Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were dear friends. They could not have more different views on the law, and yet they vacationed together and enjoyed one another's company and went out to dinner together. And somebody once asked Scalia how that relationship works. And he said famously, What's not to like about her, except her entire view of the law? <laughs> and there's just something about that that you're like, man, that is straight up right. And if that can happen in that setting, should it not be able to happen in the context of the church? Because I would suggest to you that harmony is what the church was made for. So that's harmony explained. Now harmony expressed. So this message is about singing, and yet I've not talked about singing at all, and I've done that on purpose, and here's why. Because if you don't get the first half of the message right, you don't have any opportunity to listen to the second. If you don't get the first half right, it'll all be pride divided on the second half. If you don't get the first half right about who we are and what God has called us to, you won't be able to process the other parts of what this text is saying. So harmony needs to be explained because then harmony can be expressed. So look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Here's a command. Like in the book of Hebrews, we saw three let us statements. Let us come, let us cling, let us consider. Here we have it again. Let the word of Christ, it's supposed to do something in us. So whatever follows, we have to listen carefully because apparently we must do what's next. Secondly, this harmony is about the word of Christ. So it says, let the word of Christ. So whatever comes is in order to platform the word of Christ. So harmony, in this context, has a target. And its target, namely, is to highlight the message of Christ. It's to highlight the person of Christ. It's to highlight the work of Christ. It's to highlight the power of Christ. That's what the word of Christ means. So essentially, again, what we're talking about is the same thing we talked about last week, which is the gospel, a rehearsing of the gospel. So as our team plans for this Sunday morning gathering, and we try and figure out how can we best help you to follow Jesus, the central thing that we're always asking ourselves is how can we find new, creative, historic, deep, personal ways to rehearse the gospel? How can we take the text and be able to figure out how we can sing about the truth that is in here so that it speaks the various heart languages of our people? We think through, are the words true? 
Yes, we think through, are the words doctrinally correct? And in some cases, our team has changed the wording of particular songs. Or we choose to not sing a particular song because it just doesn't fit with a, a good description of what should be true. We also think, is it memorable? Because we don't just want you to rehearse the gospel once, we want you to sing it through the rest of the week. Again, our goal is for you to be in awe of Jesus by the time you leave. I know some days that's really clear and evident because it's happened in your soul. Other weeks, maybe you leave and that's not so much true. But the goal is the same. It is somehow to have you in awe with the word about Christ. Now what's more, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly. So that's, this means at one level that the word of Christ should dwell in the hearts of every believer, which it already does. 1 Peter 1.23 and James 1.21 tells us that there is, for those who are followers of Jesus, an implanted word within you. But what it means is that corporate worship, and specifically singing, has the effect of causing the word to permeate into your heart and life in a different way than if you weren't here with God's people. It, it massages the word of Christ into your soul, into your emotions. It reminds you what is indeed true, and that is how the word of Christ dwells in you richly. Uh, Ephesians chapter five, Paul says nearly the same thing, but in this context, he connects it to the spirit. He says this, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. So how are you filled with the spirit? Here's how, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord, with your heart. So to be filled with the Spirit doesn't mean that you have more of the Spirit quantitatively, like you lack the Spirit. What it does mean, though, is that by singing together, that the Spirit has more control of you. That by coming to the Lord's Day and singing together with God's people, you're gonna be better able to fend off the wiles of the devil the rest of the week. You're gonna taste and see the Lord's goodness so you can see what stupid other tastes you're not gonna follow. You're gonna be filled with the Spirit so that the Spirit is controlling you and mastering you and having more and more ownership of your life. In the same way that alcohol could control you, Paul says, no, let the Spirit control you. And how? As you sing. That's why the word richly is so important. It means in full abundance. And the idea is that the Word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ would have greater and greater control of us. And in order for that to happen, it means that we have to speak the heart language of lots of different people. The context of richly is not have it dwell in you richly, it's a plural. So the idea is that it dwells in y'all richly, that's the point. All of you richly. This is one of the reasons why I use the term the both of worship is that it should dwell richly in my soul, but it should also dwell richly in your soul. And my tastes for how richly is expressed are gonna be different than how richly is expressed in your life. Some churches, in order to solve this, have different services with different kind of heart language music. So you have a classic service. You have a contemporary service. You have a blues service, a jazz service, a gospel service, and even a country western service. It's true. Other churches draw the line in the 18th and 19th century and they only use traditional songs. Others only use contemporary. And what we try to do here is try and find a blend of both. And I'm sure that you have an opinion about how we do in that blending of both. But I want you to know this. There are very, very few churches who try and do the breadth of what we do. 
from Bach to rock, <laughs> from choir and orchestra to band, and also do it all with volunteers. The goal is to be able to express the word of Christ richly. That goes way beyond just my personal definition, way beyond your definition of what is richly. Because, listen, take sermons. There's some sermons that I'm sure you love and others that you don't like. My goodness, there's some sermons that I love and some of my own I don't like. Some sermons I'm really interested in what I have to say and other times I'm boring myself to death up here. There's some songs that I like that we sing and others, eh, not so much. Some things that we do in worship that I think are really helpful to my soul and others, yeah, they're, just, they're just not helpful. In fact, a couple weeks ago, there was something that we were doing in the service and it wasn't sinful, but it just wasn't necessarily helpful to my soul. And as soon as that particular thing was done, there was this woman in front of me and she was like, <laughs> and I was like, wow, she really liked that. And I worshiped through her excitable clapping. And I thought, if it blessed her, then it blesses me, because I love her more than I dislike what I just experienced. The harmony expressed through singing is an important dynamic of what it means for us to realize that we are the body of Christ. The harmony expressed through singing also here has an important teaching component. Look at it, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, in all wisdom. So there's a teaching and an admonishing perspective. So understand that singing is a part of the teaching ministry of the church, that we teach and admonish one another through wisdom. We teach and admonish one another through the way in which we sing. Somebody has said that as we worship, so we believe. So you need to think of, think of singing as poetic catechism. It shapes our hearts, it shapes our habits, it shapes what we love. And because of this, this text says that it has both a horizontal and a vertical dynamic to it. It says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So notice that singing has both a horizontal element and a vertical element. There are times that we sing to one another, and there are times that we sing to God. In no surprise, we have a very large screen behind me. It's called an iMag. Image magnification, the purpose of that is because in a large sanctuary, if we didn't have that, you wouldn't be able to see facial expressions and you wouldn't be able to be as engaged in a sermon if we didn't have that screen. So it's a tool, but we also use it in worship. But do you know that we use it in worship this way? When songs are horizontal, we sing to one another, that's when we put people's faces up. Because we want you to be able to see the people not only around you, but the people who are leading in worship because we're singing to one another. And when a song is vertically oriented, that's when there are no faces, it's just text. So there's intentionality. No one's sitting behind the, 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 uh, the stage flipping a coin thing. What should we do today? No, there's a, there's a sense of intentionality of both verticalness and horizontal in terms of the nature of the kind of song that we're singing. There's a teaching component. Verse 16 also includes categories of songs that we are to sing. Look at it. Verse 16 says, teaching and admonishing one another in singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The same categories appeared in Ephesians chapter five, didn't they? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Now listen, these terms, these are not easy to define. Let me try. 
It seems as though psalms are sort of scriptural words. Notice that in the ESV, it's not capitalized, not capital P psalms, but it means psalms, words that have a scriptural component to them. Hymns are those songs that have sort of a doctrinal truth bent to them, and spiritual songs are new songs that express praise to God. And therefore, the diet of worship over time ought to include an aspect of all of these elements. But here's the thing. We have to be really careful that we not make one more sacred than the other. That often happens. The Bible nowhere prescribes how many psalms, how many hymns, how many spiritual songs we should sing. In fact, even the terms themselves are historically fluid, and I'm not being postmodern. I mean that songs that we sing today that we call the hymns were at one time considered spiritual songs. There are hymns today that we look at that were new. Every song at some point was a new song. Every song was. The challenge is you add a little bit of your preference into the mix and you have a recipe for conflict. When you sort of draw a box around and say, these are the songs that are the real songs. And that's caused all kinds of division in the church. For example, in my former church, I was in Holland, Michigan, and in Holland, Michigan was the church that led the split of the Reformed Church of America in 1857. At that time, the Reformed Church of America was one entire denomination, but it split to the Christian Reformed Church and the Reformed Church of America. And among the three issues that they split over, the number one issue that they split about was the singing of those man-made hymns versus just singing the Psalms. And they split over that issue. Listen, nearly every generation has had these issues. So in order to understand some of the challenges related to singing, you have to know a little bit about church history. For example, John Calvin banned the organ. Some reformers banned all instruments. Congregational singing at, at its outset in the Reformation was incredibly controversial. Anglicans mandated the Book of Common Prayer, which prescribed liturgy for worship every Sunday, and John Bunyan refused to use it, and he went to prison because of it. The Wesleyans, they wrote unconventional hymns. The Puritans, they banned stained glass and Christmas. Merry Christmas. The Second Great Awakening gave us cutting-edge hymns like Trust and Obey and Come Thou Fount. Fast forward to the 70s and 80s during my lifetime, there were these new choruses that were written, and yet in my tribe of churches, we banned Keith Green and the Imperials. In fact, if you listen to Striper, whoo, you had to do it in your basement. <laughs> and you couldn't tell anyone. Words on a screen when I was in seminary, that was hotly debated. And people raising their hands in worship, there was an extensive discussion about whether or not that drew too much attention on you and took attention away from the Lord. And for that matter, majesty, the song, was cutting edge. The point is for you to realize that just choose your period in church history, you'll always find some level of conflict. Every generation has had their challenges and their controversies as it relates to how and what we should sing, and the church in its life, in worship, is always reforming, and it should be. Because there is always two dangers, of a church that reforms so much and it chases everything that's new just because it's new, or a church that fossilizes and it refuses to reform and gets stuck in the past because it's the past. We must always maintain the core. What is the core? The core is this, the gospel and our love for one another. And I think that's why this text says things like, with wisdom and thankfulness and to God. 
So in the first message on this series, I, I shared that our church demographic and our culture is changing, and I'm, I'm sure that you all sense that. I sense that. Everybody senses that. And I'm sure that there are times in the context of what we do on a Sunday morning gathering that you love what we do, and I'm sure that there are times that you don't. And while there's nothing wrong with having the discussion about why we do what we do, actually, I have it often. I want to both assure you and challenge you. Let me assure you, first and foremost, that our aim, when we put together Sundays, every Sunday we are thinking, what can we do to glorify the Lord, to make the gospel clear and compelling? How can we balance the interests of a broad array of people with lots of different opinions and lots of different tastes? How can we speak the the heart language of as many people as possible, knowing that we're not gonna reach every single person every single time? Our aim is to use the best songs of the present and also the best songs of the past. We try to speak the heart language of people from all walks of life, to use the tools that are available to us in this present moment, in this season of church history. And at the end of the day, while You may love what we do or you may not like what we do. Here is the thing that I want you to know as to why we do what we do. It is that we desperately want the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. And so it's worth the tears, it's worth the struggle, it's worth the thoughtfulness, it's worth the joy. Because at the end of the day, I want you, we want you to look like Jesus. We want the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. And then let me give you a challenge. So how can you prepare your heart for singing every Sunday? Here's four quick ways. Number one, remind your heart that this is about the gospel, that our love for Jesus brings us together. Our love for one another makes this meeting incredibly powerful and significant. And let me encourage you, let me join me in trying to find ways to rehearse the gospel in the songs that we sing, in the ones that you love, and also how to rehearse the song, how to rehearse the gospel in songs that you might not. Remind yourself at the end of the day, this is about the gospel. Number two, could you be reminded that this is about us, not about me? That the gathering of God's people is an unusual statement about the beauty of something beyond our individual lives. And in the midst of all of the customization and the individualization that's a part of our experience, it is really good that on a regular basis we are reminded, oh yeah, that's right, this isn't about me. (laughs) This church isn't about me. This church is about you. It's about the beauty of who and what Jesus is. And frankly, that's a good thing for us to be reminded about. Third, the reality is is that there are times that corporate gatherings are going to be uncomfortable, and that's not a bad thing. There will be songs that you love and others not so much. You may be here and you don't like to sing. You may want it softer, louder, shorter, longer, or whatever. But at some point, I would guess that you're going to be somehow uncomfortable. And rather than resisting that tension or resenting that tension, why not embrace it and still be all in? Why not be named among those who are mature, who are therefore easily edified? Let me tell you something I'm learning about myself as I get older. You know, my sons are gone. It's just my wife, my daughter, my mother-in-law. I'm at home. The house is quiet. And I like it that way. It's nice. I can kind of do what I want, read what I want, do some writing. It's, it's quiet. When the boys come home, I love it that they're home, and I love it when they leave. <laughs> and I'm also finding that I'm, I'm a little less patient with interruptions now that I have life the way that I like it. 
And I find myself a little bit more irritated as I've gotten older. I've gotten wiser and smarter, I trust, over the years. But I also find every once in a while this little grumpy old man thing that comes out of me. Like, why can't the kids be quiet? Or, oh, I'm so tired. It's time to go to bed. It's 9.15, you know? I've also found in pastoral ministry that the older I've gotten, the more experience I have, the more things I've been dinged by, the more concerns I have about having had experience in things, that it's also to become a grumpy old man in that way as well. Pastoral residents who give a sermon, I have to be careful. My criticisms can be sharper than what they were five years ago. I can hear something that they say and think, ugh, that makes me so nervous. Or don't they know I can kind of go down a path much easier because I know more and I've experienced more. And as a result, also, it's harder to listen when sermons aren't exactly the way that I like them. I have to work harder at being edified because my experience in life has not made me more flexible. It's actually made me less. How does that happen? I don't know. But I'm praying that God changes that within my soul. And friends, the same is true not only about preaching and about life and home, but it's also in regards to how we sing and what we sing. So if that resonates within your heart, can you just join me in saying, yes, Lord, don't let me be that kind of person? And finally, could we land on this singular point of realizing that what we have experienced here this morning and what it is to be the church is something beautiful? I mean, just, do you know what you've done already this morning? You've gathered with a group of people. You've already sung the praises of God's name. You've celebrated the Lord's table with other sinful human beings. Listen, you are singing to a God you would hate with people who would be your enemies were it not for God's grace. It's unbelievable that you get to do that. Just look around you. People who don't live in your neighborhoods, people who don't look like you, don't come from the same church backgrounds as you, don't come from the same socioeconomic strata as you. And here we all together under one banner of Christ because Christ is all and in all. There is nothing like the corporate gathering of God's people. And when we sing, we give evidence that the beautiful harmony of God's church is not only theoretical, it is also practical. When we sing, we say, Christ, you're awesome. And your church, although it's a mess, we love it because at the end of the day, being part of the body of Christ reminds me that Jesus one day is going to come and make all this right. And until then, we live in this harmony, tension, and we sing together because the church was made to make much of Jesus. And church, we do that as I sing and as you sing and as we sing and we do it to him. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 Lord Jesus, we... um, We need your help because there's parts of our hearts that would be really quick to go down pathways of self-centeredness and um, those camps of being resentful or being a resister. And we just thank you that, Lord, you make the church work in a way that we could never. It never ceases to amaze me how the body of Christ functions, and we thank you that it's because of what you have done and who you are. So forgive us of moments where we've been selfish, selfish in being resentful or selfish in being 
a resistor. We pray for wisdom, pray for a good spirit to remain within our church. We thank you for the beauty of how we are together because of Christ. So Lord, we love you today. I'm grateful for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.